Hello, I'm Matt Brown. I'm the founder of Global Progress and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Welcome to the Recovery Project podcast. Together with Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project, designed to look ahead from the COVID-19 pandemic, how we can recover economically, fiscally and institutionally to build stronger economies, societies and democracies. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined on our podcast by Hella Thorning-Schmidt, the former Prime Minister of Denmark and former leader of the Social Democrats. She's the first woman to have held each post. After her time in politics, she joined Save the Children International as CEO. And currently, she is one of the four co-chairs of Facebook's new initiative called the Oversight Board, an independent body overseeing Facebook and moderating the company's content decisions. Thank you for joining me today, Hella. Before we begin, how are you? I'm very good, Matt. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, and thanks for taking the, the time. Uh, we've got a, a broad, uh, broad range of issues that we'd like to cover today on the podcast. But let's start, um, given the work that you've done with the Bagruan Institute on the renewal of democracy, let's start with the question of democracy and governance and, and the COVID crisis. What is it, do you think, that explains the difference uh, between the way in which some states have responded to this crisis? Is it a a case that illiberal states or authoritarian states are able to lock down better, or are there other explanations for why uh, why certain systems have performed better, or why certain countries have performed better than others in this crisis? I think the confusing thing for us who um, who are scholars of democracy and looks at democracy uh, and have done for many years is actually that you see some uh, autocratic states which have done very well. Uh, Vietnam, for example, is not actually a democracy and has done very well in preventing the virus from spreading. But you see also very advanced democracies uh, like, of course, New Zealand, uh, my own home country, Denmark, uh, Germany, of course, which have done extremely well uh, in keeping the virus down and the spread of the virus down. down. So I think we have to seek other explanations uh, than whether it's a democracy or not. And what we can actually say is some of the more authoritarian regimes, they have really pushed people, uh, people push people's freedom, both in terms of their, their personal information, but also of their, their freedom of movement. Uh, so that's what you see in Vietnam, for example, whereas other more democratic states have done, have done that a little bit less. But I do think what it comes down to, and also looking at this from the point of view of, of the UK, uh, where, which I have, I've lived in the UK most of the lockdown and seen the, the mistakes being done uh, in this country. And what I'm taking away from all of this is that it is actually the countries, the governments that have a much more inclusive leadership culture. And where it's not only, it doesn't matter so much which color of government you have. What does, what does seem to matter is do they have a, a way of consulting the decentralized level of governments? Um, is there a way of consulting civic, civil society, trade unions, employers? Um, is there a way of um, discussing this with the other parties in, in the parliament and, re and receiving consensus and compromise around some of these issues? Uh, and in short, is there a way of changing this from a government-imposed lockdown to something that we do together as a society? So I think from a democratic point of view, there's so much we can learn from this lockdown. And I will say that the most advanced democracies uh, 
uh, with minority inclusion, with the whole country being included, with uh, civil society uh, consultations, those have been the most successful uh, in the democratic world. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you on uh, on that point and also on the point that the more inclusive and participative the, the decision-making process, the more likely it is that you end up not just with better policy, but also um, uh, a policy in which uh, everybody feels that they have uh, a part in it and a part to play. I wondered whether, I mean, you raised what's happening in the UK. I think there are a lot of problems here um, that the world is observing. But one of those, I guess, is the issue of, uh, uh, of trust and information. We, we started off in the UK, of course, claiming that everything was, was led by the, the scientists. And increasingly, what it looks like is that uh, policy is being driven by a public relations campaign, particularly uh, in the, the recent days, given uh, the Dominic Cummings affair and the, the claims that a, uh, a, senior, uh, a senior age of the prime minister uh, broke lockdown rules. How important do you think it is that, that, that uh, the, these crises of communication, if you wish, how, how important do you think trust in what the government is saying is also important? And, and what are the lessons to be learned here from the UK or, or elsewhere? It has become very clear, and I agree with you, that trust has become a major thing in these kind of uh, crises. Uh, and I saw um, an amazing uh, survey the other day from, uh, from Edelman, trust barometer uh, done in these uh, these weeks uh, and months showing that trust in politicians and particularly trust in government leaders have gone up enormously i think they are at a record break breaking high uh, so the trust in uh, president macron and uh, chancellor merkel and other leaders uh, have actually not been higher for a very long time so i think that's an interesting thing uh, to a certain degree that was the same in the uk until it wasn't so much anymore. <laughs> uh, but there has actually been a, a trust in leaders uh, across the board, which I find interesting. It shows that when there is a crisis, even even consensus-driven moderate leaders can be popular, which we thought was a thing of the past. So that's quite, uh, that's quite good and encouraging. Uh, but we've also seen that uh, the trust in experts have gone up. Uh, there has been for a long time been this... Um, doubt about whether experts still had a role to play in our society and everyone has been attacking the elite or the thinking elite or the intellectuals but there has actually been a renewed trust in experts and I think that's a very positive thing as well and but what we have also seen is when politics and science mix um, that cocktail will always be much more political than science-based. And I think that is, has, has been a very clear uh, thing in the UK, but, but in many countries as, le as well. Politics sh trumps uh, science uh, any day when a pandemic rolls like this. And then you have the added factor that if the lockdown or the opening, which, uh, which is much harder, is not based on community, society, taking these decisions together, then it will be um, descend into a PR exercise, as you say. And I think the worst example of that is perhaps uh, the UK, which, of course, I, I know best as well, where everything is turned into a PR uh, exercise. And, uh, of course, then we have the American example, where there is um, a fierce debate and where this is turned into a, a blue-red debate, basically, uh, which is, is very bad and where science had been pushed back right back uh, into the corner uh, and uh, this has become purely political.
Yeah, I, look, I, I mean, I think uh, the degree of partisanship in, in the US is, is indeed very troubling, uh, as is the, the slip in the UK to just pure, uh, pure PR strategy. But you, you mentioned earlier some of the, the successful uh, democratic uh, government responses. Uh, the New York Times recently wrote an article uh, looking at whether the fact that many of these states were led by uh, women, uh, had women heads of state or government, uh, was it was a factor, and and they also in, in that article drew on on the the point that you made earlier, which was that um, women tend to have a culture of including more people and more comfortable uh, including them in the decision making process, whereas sort of the the more arrogant alpha male uh, tends to think that they always know best. So the kind of Trump and Johnson uh, on one scale, uh, one side of the scale, and Angela Merkel, uh, Jacinda Ardern, or Meta Frederiksen on, on the other. I mean. Th- is that your experience of, of uh, leadership in government? Well, as you know, I've, I've always been a feminist, uh, and I still am. And I like to, um, I, and I like to think that female leaders are as good as uh, as male leaders. But I don't. I'm not sure you can make that distinction. Also, because I don't think that it all comes down to the specific leader. I. When I observe these countries that have done very well, what it actually comes down to is a political culture and institutions that back, uh, that backs this democratic and inclusive culture. And that is much more important than individual leaders. I think individual leaders matter, of course, and they have to take the leadership and they have to communicate and they have to get the trust of people and be inclusive. But I would say that um, a male leader with the similar skills as as Merkel uh, or other female leaders would have been able to uh, to do the same thing if they had the if they were living in a political culture of compromise and uh, seeking uh, advice uh, from science, but also seeking advice from civil society. For example, when they open schools in my own home country, I know that the teachers' uh, union were in constant consultation with the government. I mean, basically spoke every day to the minister uh, and the, the people in, um, in her staff about opening schools. And I think that is the way you do it. And if there is a difference between male and female here, perhaps it is that, that women tend to be very de- oriented towards detail and very practical uh, and see the smaller sides of a big thing. And I looked at Boris Johnson, for example, when he said, oh, tomorrow you can go to work, but you can't use public transport uh, in his big statement. And as a woman, I reacted very strongly to that because we all know that more women than men use public transport, uh, that it can be very, very difficult to get to work if you don't use public transport and don't have a car. So I don't think that a, a woman who was used to traveling with her kids or using public transport herself would ever have used such a sentence because they would know that how impossible it, it was without further instructions of how to behave when you actually take public transport. So perhaps there's a slight difference there. Yeah. Let's let's uh, shift focus a little bit. You mentioned earlier the the, uh, the reinvigorated role of science, but I wonder whether we can also touch on the role of technology in this crisis, uh, and in particular uh, as we look to ease the the social distancing measures uh, and to open up the economy. It seems clear that technology is going to be used more and more to uh, to assist this, uh, whether that's through track and trace apps uh, or 
uh, immunity passports that may, may be held online or, or other such initiatives. Is there a danger, though, that in using this technology that we're sort of infringing on people's privacy? Uh, and if you, you think that is the case, what sort of safeguards can we, we put in place to ensure that those democratic freedoms are, are protected as we use this technology? Yeah, I think, first of all, we have to conclude that fear is perhaps the most powerful factor in, uh, in organizing people's thoughts and people's lives. We saw that fear of this disease has uh, made people be very relaxed about uh, sharing their private data, very relaxed about uh, getting access to the freedom of movement that we take for granted uh, all the time, uh, very keen to trust uh, their leader and uh, think that perhaps democracy wasn't so important. So fear is a very powerful factor. Uh, and I hope that we are not in, in the future when we build this new architecture for yeah, for how we're going to live together after um, COVID-19, that we don't, uh, that our fear will not be fueling us so much that we are ready to give up all our private data and, and all our uh, freedom in, in many aspects of our freedom. Uh, so we have to find a new architecture where our private details uh, will be protected and where they can't be used by governments against us. This is uh, only one part of the new architecture that has to follow this, uh, this coronavirus. I think it is increasingly clear that this is a similar situation to after 9-11, where the whole world had to come together and find new ways of how we were tracking terrorists, uh, how we were working together on that, how we were traveling using um, uh, when we were flying. Uh, how all these things, there has to be a whole new architecture. And my only hope, and I'm not super optimistic these days, is that leaders will come together and organize themselves and take these decisions together because that's also part of protecting our data. It scares me a lot if um, all the airline companies will have all my data about what temperature I, ha I had on a specific day and other health data. It scares me if any government has, has those data. So I really hope we can come up with a global architecture to, uh, to try and uh, protect citizens from, uh, from, too, from giving up too much of their privacy. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's, that's a crucial measure. But if we're relying on, on uh, world leaders to, to come together, the outlook is pretty bleak at the moment. Um, I mean, if you compare the way in which world leaders have, have responded to the, the global financial crisis uh, a decade ago, there was swift action from the G20, uh, coordinated national responses through various other mechanisms. And it seems in some ways that it's been a bit of a free-for-all. Um, so, you know, is, is that a view that you share? Do you lament the lack of sort of global solidarity and leadership at this time? And, and if so, you know, what, what could we do about that? It's obvious that there has been a total lack of global solidarity and that the crisis has also seen some new um, crisis deepening uh, and here I'm not talking about uh, the conflict in Libya uh, flaring up or other conflicts. I'm talking about uh, conflicts that were there before. Uh, and now, right now we have, I mean, at least three. We have the uh, Saudi Arabia against Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia against uh, the U.S. regarding oil prices and oil production. You have uh, U.S. against China, uh, 
based on three things. First of all, the handling of, of the virus. Uh, then, of course, uh, trade, which has been going for a while. And now we can add Hong Kong to that, uh, to that dispute. Uh, and that is uh, the U.S. with a number of other uh, governments uh, in the world. Then you have, of course, the big issue around the vaccine. Uh, we are all hoping that uh, the World Health Organization could be part of cooperate, getting um, nations to cooperate around a vaccine. Uh, the U.S. is uh, against um, basically everyone on this and have opted out of the World Health Organization. And that means not only that they're not cooperating, it's, it's active obstruction of trying to work together on finding a, a vaccine and more importantly, perhaps, uh, or as importantly, distributing this in a fair way when it finally gets uh, gets found. So we have these all these crises that had just deepened and deepened with this uh, virus. And so you're absolutely right. After the financial crisis, we actually did come together. We had American leadership, which was shored up by British leadership at the time. Uh, now we have none of those things. Uh, and, uh, and it feels like everyone is just out there for themselves, which has been a really big tendency in this crisis as well. And I know if I'm looking for global leadership, I might have to uh, wait for a very long time, but it shouldn't stop us from actually saying very, very loud and clear that this is what we need at this time, more global leadership to solve these issues. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, absolutely. Look, one of the areas in which part of this global competition has, uh, has played out is online and in the social media sphere. You, you know, you've certainly seen, for example, um, Chinese public diplomacy being far more aggressive in terms of the, the, the supposedly positive role that they have played helping other parts of the world on the pandemic. Um, but that's all, but what we've also seen online is the, the growth of uh, a series of uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation about how the virus emerged, uh, how the virus is spread. I'm thinking here in particular of things about the claims that 5G masks, for example, help cause the virus. Um, uh, on, a, on a positive front, um, the social media platforms have actually been a bit more proactive in this area than they have uh, at other times. You know, actively working to re to remove uh, certain accounts or to uh, to take down uh, disinformation or to, or to flag uh, misinformation. Yeah, is there a lesson that we can learn um, from the social media platforms' approach to disinformation in this crisis, and that we might want to apply to to other areas? Uh, of communication. It's a very interesting discussion. Should social media platforms take down information that is blatantly false uh, about the disease, uh, about the American uh, voting system, which we have these days going on on Twitter with a discussion between Twitter and the American president, uh, or the Brazilian president uh, Bolsonaro uh, saying that, uh, that the pandemic hardly exists and it won't hurt Brazilians. I mean, there have been so many lies uh, on uh, on the internet uh, and the next one of course will be the anti-vaccine uh, groups uh, across the world which will be yeah, going against the vaccine uh, once once we if we ever find a vaccine so these are there are many falsehoods out there on the internet and the big question is should the in internet um, become or take the role of the arbiter of truth um, and how much do we want the, the social media providers to clean the internet? Uh, I want to raise this question. I mean, personally, I am very interested in, in seeing how um, Putin lies to his people about uh, the COVID-19. I am very interested to see how Bolsonaro does the same. 
So I am interested as a citizen, as a global citizen, to understand these lies. I'm also interested to understand what the anti-vac people are saying, what arguments they're using, uh, what kind of conspiracy the uh, theories are out there, and and what I will, what will, what people are discussing. So I think they we should start with a discussion about how much of these falsehoods do we actually want to be taken down, or do we actually want to know what's happening out there when people are saying the world is flat? Do we want to know about this, or do we want not want to know about it? I think that's a, that should be the, our starting point. Let's dig a little deeper into that. You've recently uh, become one of the, the co-chairs of uh, Facebook's oversight board or the oversight board that Facebook establishes an in independent body to look into to ways in which its platform may, may or, or may not be governed. Um, could you tell us just a little bit more about what, how, that, how that project developed and, and how it will function, uh, and in particular to the, uh, on these kind of issues? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this all started back in is quite a while ago. It's back in November 2018, where Mark Zuckerberg, through some various conversations, not with me but with other people, realized that Facebook had gathered too much power when they were the ones deciding solely what content gets uh, removed and what content stays up on Facebook and Instagram. And that was a starting point of the idea of this oversight board. Uh, this was established uh, a, a, month, a month ago with where the members um, got announced. And our role is basically to be an appeal um, body for uh, users of Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if a user has had content removed and they disagree with Facebook's decision, they can appeal that decision to the oversight board. And uh, the, the most important part for me in joining and I know all the other 19 members for joining is that this is independent of Facebook. Uh, they have put the funding for this in, an, in a trust which can't be re uh, revoked uh, and this is also uh, the, the, it's also very clear that the decisions that we take as an oversight board has to be followed by Facebook both on Facebook and, and Instagram. So it's independent uh, and uh, we don't owe Facebook anything. We don't have to look to Facebook's uh, economic performance or their uh, reputation. Uh, and we will take the final decisions uh, on content on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm sure have many, many difficult discussions and many difficult decisions and agree with many people. But for the first time, it is actually, there is actually a way of the internet community to complain to an uh, an independent body uh, about decisions taken by Facebook. So, so is that just around decisions about, that Facebook have already made about taking some things down, or will there be groups who will advocate that Facebook should moderate and take down some forms of content, and that the presence of that content on Facebook is harmful? Will it work in the other way, or is it just an, is just an appeals? Yes, it will work both ways. In the in the beginning, it'll, it will be uh, content that Facebook has removed because uh, technically it's much easier because that's between a user and Facebook. Uh, Facebook has removed something, the user is unhappy about it, the user complains. So that's an easier uh, route. Uh, with time, it will also be about content that Facebook has left up. Uh, of course, that takes a third person to complain about it. Uh, user one has uh, put something up, 
uh, user uh, 2 is uh, is not happy about that and complains to Facebook why they have not removed it. Uh, and then that person can complain uh, to uh, to the oversight board if they're, they're not happy. So it's a bit more complex. But it will be within our scope to look at that. Uh, ads will also be within our scope. And I'm absolutely convinced that this crucial debate about uh, what falsehoods uh, Facebook should uh, leave uh, up uh, or remove will also be part of our discussions because it is so vital. And the reason why I started with the other dis discussion is that we have a tendency when we see something which is clearly false, uh, just a blatant lie, that we ask, we stay out, say, why didn't Facebook take this down immediately? But we have to find that that, that cross between someone else's freedom of expression which is a very dear human right, very important human right, and when that touches on someone else's human, other human rights. So that is where, that is the touch point we have to find, uh, freedom of expression and human rights. And personally, I don't think that just because some, someone thinks that something is false, uh, it should be immediately removed from, uh, from Facebook or, or Instagram. It has to be more harmful than that. And the big debate is how harmful is a false uh, bit of uh, content? Uh, and how many people does it reach? How much action is taken from that? Uh, and how has uh, Facebook decided to promote that? So these are some of the considerations that this oversight bo uh, board will have. And as you can hear, it, it will be hugely complicated to take these decisions. Yeah, no, look, it's it's a very very complicated uh, uh, set of issues that you're dealing with. One one, one final question on this um, would be: rather than just focusing on content, will the board look at the ways in which content is dis is disseminated? Um, and by that I mean, you know, the algorithms, uh, the sort of business model behind the behind the actual front end of the platform. Because um, it seems to me there's one thing about uh, content being put up and whether it's okay or not. There's another about, uh, and, and in some ways you can say there should be freedom of speech. The issue isn't really freedom of speech. It's the, it's the, the virality, uh, uh, of certain forms of content, which we know, uh, let's call it clickbait or otherwise, which we know sort of encourages people, uh, to disseminate, to look at or, uh, or otherwise. And I wonder whether the board will be looking at whether, whether there are, there should be fundamental changes to the way that, that's the, algorithms themselves work or whether there'll be algorithm, algorithmic transparency about why certain things are pushed and why other stories aren't. Yeah, uh, this is, a, of course, a very important issue because a piece of content which is uh, seen by very few um, and uh, ranked very low uh, and not, not, when, when not many actions have been taken is, of course, less dangerous than if it comes from a, a person who's got uh, millions of followers and where loads of action is taken and if it's uh, it gets a lot of exposure so that goes without saying so one of the issues we will be looking at is of course uh, what has been the exposure of this piece of content and what has been the activation uh, based on that uh, and that of course uh, goes into the the algorithms that facebook uh, use uh, so from that point of view we will be asking what did Facebook do with this piece of content uh, to to lower its ranking and uh, to to make fewer people be impacted by this piece of content? So that would be an obvious question, and that will actually impact on the algorithms. Uh, the other thing which encourages me is that uh, Facebook, of course, have their community standards, which, when you read them, are actually quite quite good. Um, so 
what we will also uh, be able to do is if there are a number of cases pointing in a direction that means that the community standards should be changed, uh, we will recommend to Facebook that they should change their community standards. And by doing that, we will also indirectly be recommending to Facebook that they need to change their algorithms because, of course, the algorithms are based on their community standards. Uh, I hope this uh, answer makes sense. It's quite complicated, but uh, we will. The, the good thing about the oversight board, um, and we're actually going to do this really humble because we know this is very difficult, but the good thing about the, the oversight board is that our decisions take, uh, take precedence, and that means that other cases which are like that um, they have to either be removed or, or remain on the platforms uh, after we have taken a decision. And that will mean that over time, the community standards and the algorithms will, will change as well. Look, I, you're right. It is a, it's a, a difficult set of issues and a, 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 um, a politically charged one. So, so, so best of luck uh, with that initiative. Uh, <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting uh, few months for you all. Uh, I'd move to the final question now and, and, and leave it as a, a kind of open one, really. But it's just reflecting on the global financial crisis of, uh, of a decade ago. You know, there was definitely a feeling that while progressives worked very well to ensure that the world economy didn't go off the cliff, that, you know, that while we won that battle, the war about what kind of society, what kind of economic model would predominate afterwards was won by our opponents on the conservative side. Um, I'm not sure whether you agree with that, and it is, of course, a huge generalization, but, but it's, it's, it's sort of an argument that, that's, that's commonly made. I, I wonder whether you agreed with that, and if so, or even if not, uh, so, you know, what we can do now as a progressive family to ensure that as we come out of the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis, the economic, social, and, and public health crisis, that as we're you know, spending massive amounts of money to, to restart the economy, how, how can we ensure that we're building back better? Oh, it's such a it's such a big question. Uh, I was so disheartened the other day when I saw new figures of um, of people living in extreme poverty, because it is estimated that sixty million people uh, will be added to uh, living in extreme poverty after this pandemic. Sixty million, and don't forget, extreme poverty is to live for under two dollars uh, a day. So this is very serious, and this is a bigger economic backlash than we had after the financial crisis. And it's uh, global and it will take us a long time to recover. Uh, we talked about how we can despair about the lack of global cooperation about around these issues, how we're not even sure that the G7 will happen right now, uh, and how we don't see world leaders stepping up. Uh, what we can be happy about, though, which I'm happy about, is that uh, you we're seeing Euro European leaders stepping up right now. Uh, the European Union has been through a very hard time over the last few months. Uh, it was so bad in the beginning of February and March. Uh, Italy asked for help from um, from the other European member states, got actually no response whatsoever, uh, and and felt that they were completed completely forgotten by the European Union and the member states. Uh, and there was massive rows between the North and the South uh, about uh, health packages. Now we finally have a good proposal from, um, from Macron and uh, Chancellor Merkel and also backed by the Commission, which came with their proposal yesterday. And that actually gives me great hope that the European Union once again will come out stronger than, than before, like we did from the financial crisis. So that's a good thing.
Uh, but I am in despair about the rest of the world because I, I think these trade wars that we are seeing, China, US, uh, uh, they will only go worse before they can get better. And of course, they'll impact all of us economically. And as ha always happens, it is the most marginalized people in the whole world that will suffer most when big nations can't agree and find uh, multilateral solutions to big problems. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The 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 possible onset of a kind of cold war between the US and China is frightening. Um, but it does mean that if uh, Europe can strengthen itself, uh, then maybe we'll also be able to play a bigger role on the uh, the, the global stage. At least that's that's something to hope for. That is what I'm hoping for, yes. Yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed. Hella, thank you so much for, for joining our podcast today uh, and sharing your insights on this this range of issues. To our audience, thank you for listening. Stay safe and be well. If you want to learn more about the Recovery Project, then please visit our website, recoveryproject.org. Thank you.